The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. A couple of announcements before we get started. There will be a short congregational meeting following the Sunday morning service on Sunday, the 22nd of July. Uh, that will be, there's no vote or anything like that. It's just an update meeting just to get information out, just to make sure everybody knows what's going on and how everything's going. And that will be on Sunday morning, 22 July. Then I will be, uh, I think it's in the bulletin or in the calendar that there's no Bible class on the 27th of July, and there will be Bible class on the 27th of July. So make sure you uh, change your calendar there, and uh, we'll go ahead and not cancel that night. Even though I won't be here, see, if I'm not here, that doesn't mean you get a, you get a freebie. Because what I try to do is arrange things that I can't do so that you can be edified by specialists in other areas. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we always need to make sure we're in fellowship, have the opportunity of silent prayer to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have eternal salvation through the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross, that he has provided everything necessary for our salvation, and in him we have everything necessary for the spiritual life. Father, we thank you for your word that is a complete and sufficient guide for every area of life for us, and that as we study your word, we know that all scripture, which has been breathed out by you, all scripture is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that we as believers might be thoroughly equipped for every issue in life. We pray as we study your word this evening that we'd be challenged by what we study, that we could learn some insights. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in one of those interesting chapters in the Bible that usually don't make the you know, top ten hit parade. You don't find this in people's uh, you know, top fav- ten favorite chapters of the Bible. You don't hear people uh, preaching on this particular text at uh, uh, commencements or uh, graduation breakfasts or uh, special events of any kind. This is uh, one of those passages that people skip over because they look at it and they want to know, what in the world is that doing in the Bible? And uh, what do I make of this? So this is uh, Genesis chapter 34. And this is one of those fascinating passages. We see different ones like this. I'm getting an echo. We've got a reverb in here. Okay. We see a number of things going on here, and it just occurred to me. Well, I'll do it this way. 
There we go. But I didn't get this set up, but we'll look at it this way. This is one of those chapters that describes the underbelly of Israel. And that always tells us that what this is emphasizing is the grace of God that is far beyond anything that we can imagine, and it's not based on anything that we do, anything that we've done. And if it were based on who we are, what we've done, then certainly God would have departed his promises to uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob a long time ago and probably departed his promises to us a long time ago. But it is a, a depiction of an event in the Old Testament that at, at its very core depicts grace. It's the story of a sexual assault, vengeance, and retribution. It's something like you could take this off the front page of, of the paper today or the 6 o'clock news. It involves the rape of Dinah, who is the daughter of Jacob and Leah. And there's then, following that, there is the attempt to make things right by the man who raped her by the name of Shechem, who is a prince of uh, the town of Shechem, which is named for him. He tries to purchase her as his wife, which just really aggravates and angers her brothers because they view this as just a, a... uh, he is uh, minimizing the whole situation. He is uh, treating her as if she's nothing more than a common prostitute. And as a result, they enact a rather brutal vengeance upon all of the inhabitants of Shechem. Uh, no, and these people are the Hivites. And they use the Abrahamic covenant as a cover and as a justification to attack and destroy all of the uh, inhabitants of Shechem. When we look at this account, we do ask the question, why is this in the Scripture? 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17 says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. So what's the profit in reading about a bizarre situation like this and where we see just the uh, all of the worst of the family of Jacob? And there is a purpose to this, and it's rather simple. Beginning with this chapter, God the Holy Spirit is revealing why it was necessary to move the Jews with Joseph down to Egypt. Remember, we have to interpret this in the context of the entire Pentateuch. The Pentateuch was written by Moses to the Jews as they came out of Egypt and have been slaves for the last... Uh, approximately 300 years, 250, 300 years of slaves, and they are on their way to the promised land. So they're asking a lot of questions like, why did God call us? Why are we here? How did we end up in Egypt? Why do we have to uh, execute holy war against the Canaanites? Why do we have to kill every man, woman, and child? They're loaded with questions like that, and so part of what is being answered in the book of Genesis is laying the foundation for why God has given this land to, to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all of the ways he has faithfully worked since the uh, promise to give the land to, to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, his faithfulness despite the unfaithfulness uh, and sinfulness of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so it reveals to them 
why it was necessary for them to go down to Egypt and to become enslaved and what God's purposes were. Furthermore, it is for them and for us a graphic portrayal of the characteristics of paganism and a warning to uh, the people at that time not to assimilate to the thinking, the culture of the Canaanites. And for us, by application, it is a warning of what happens when believers of any age, any era, assimilate to the cultural thinking of their uh, their time period, whatever it may be, whether it's 1st century, 8th century, 10th century, or 21st century, the culture around us is described by the New Testament with the word, with the Greek word cosmos, which I refer to as cosmic thinking with a K, or cosmic culture. Let's use a little German there and use two Ks for cosmic and culture. And that's what worldliness is. It is the the human viewpoint culture of any society, whether it's Chinese, Japanese, uh, Canadian, British, French, Indian, African, every culture is loaded with human viewpoint, some of which borrows, let me rephrase that, all human viewpoint systems at some point borrow from biblical truth because nobody can live consistently on human viewpoint assumptions because we they're just they're irrational and they just can't be lived out consistently. So what we have here is a portrayal of certain characteristics of pagan culture and a warning of what happens when there is that assimilation. So let me give you just a couple of introductory principles that we should keep in mind as we go through this. I have listed seven. First of all, just like an old country saying, I couldn't get this out of my head today as I thought about this. When you lie down with dogs, you're going to get up with fleas. Now, that just sounds awfully country, but it's true. When you associate with certain kinds of people and who always think the same way and have the same value system, that we can't help but be influenced by that kind of peer pressure and assimilate to that culture around us. And we are constantly exposed, every believer in every culture is constantly exposed to the input of the pagan culture around them. And when you live and operate in a pagan culture without the protection of Bible doctrine functioning as a, uh, as a filter to keep the pagan uh, viewpoints, the pagan ideas, pagan values out then what will inevitably happen is that you will begin to live and think like the people in the culture around you. And you often find in numerous periods of history when Christians quit being uh, taught the Word of God, quit being focused on the Scripture, when they no longer operate on that principle of sola scriptura, which was one of the battle cries of the Reformation, Scripture alone, that when people get away, Christians get away from that, it isn't long before they look like, live like, and think like the unbelievers around them. And that happened many times with the believers in the Old Testament as well as Christians in the New Testament, which is why the Apostle John uh, has such warnings against worldliness in uh, his first epistle in First John. So we learn the principle that believers who are negative to God's word will often out-pagan the pagans around them. 
and they will be in many cases much worse than they are. And we see that in this chapter. Secondly, in this chapter we see several characteristics that are typical of different types of paganism. First of all, there is a lax attitude towards sex and sexual norms and standards which are designed by God to be restricted to marriage as a celebration between a man and a woman. It excludes uh, polytheism, I mean polygamy, and it excludes uh, homosexuality. Uh, in paganism, sex is reduced to simple physical gratification, a physical need, and nothing more. And this is often the rationale you hear today in justification of all sorts of uh, sexual immorality, young people just wanting to live together before they get married. All of this is that sex is treated as nothing more than a biochemical need. And it is much more than that. It is something that God designed as a unique celebration of the special kind of love that should exist between a man and a woman. And with that uh, diminishing of the value of sex comes a diminishing of the value of men as men and women as women as they're designed by the uh, plan of God. And that's our second characteristic that's typical of paganism, is that the role of the sexes is perverted such that males as a class become tyrannical and oppressive toward women as a class. And women as a class, you know, seek to subvert that authority of the men. Generally, women in a system like this are also reduced to a relatively servile role in society and viewed as second-class persons and are frequently abused and become pawns for power among men. And what happens is you sometimes see a reaction on the part of women because of the failure of men to be men in a biblical sense, operating on a biblical view of manhood. And when men fail, then women want to move into the gap. And so what we've seen in our culture in the last 40 years is the rise of the radical feminist movement uh, starting back in the 60s, which has in many ways, impact. I would argue and suggest that every woman in here has been in ways that you don't perceive has been have been impacted in a negative way by the paganism of the role of women in society today. And in a lot of ways, both men and women in our society are pressured economically because of the just the way the culture is. So that, uh, for example, in the late 70s, and many of you who are old enough to remember it, remember this, in the late 70s, there was such a high degree of inflation that many women were forced to go into the workplace as opposed to being uh, having their primary uh, area of service being in the home. I ran across a study back in the 80s that I've never forgotten that was an economic study showing that in 19... Uh, in the 1910s, in the, around 1910, 1915, that the typical American family lived on the farm. And a family of four had a certain level of income and a certain level of prosperity. And 
both the father worked on the farm, the wife worked on the farm, the kids worked. It was a family unit. Everybody worked together. In 1970, it took one man working 40 hours a week to produce that same lifestyle. One man, 40 hours a week, producing that same lifestyle. By 1986, as a result of that inflation that Jimmy Carter gave us, you all remember that, it took a man and a woman each working 60 hours a week to produce the same level of lifestyle that one man produced working 40 hours a week in 1970. Now think about the radical shift that occurred socially in the way we looked at the, at, at the role of men and women in a family. I grew up in a home where I don't remember my dad ever leaving for, for work any earlier than 7.30 in the morning, and he was always home by 5.30 in the afternoon. It was like clockwork. He rode the bus, and that was it. And then, uh, and we had a great lifestyle. My mother did not work. And then, but by the 1980s, nobody could buy houses. Nobody could pay the mortgage because we'd had double-digit inflation, and people were buying houses at 11, 12 percent interest on their mortgage rates. In 1980, 79, 80, gas prices had jumped up then, just as they have now. It changed everything, and so many, many. Uh, and I remember that, that time when I was in seminary, how many uh, pastors' wives suddenly who were theologically and doctrinally opposed to being involved in the workplace just because their pastors were, their husbands were pastors of small churches and they couldn't survive anymore. The church couldn't afford to pay them a salary sufficient for the man to support the family, and so there was pressure uh, put on the wife to subsidize the, the church, basically. And I just thinking about this this afternoon, I thought probably half the pastors I know who are pastoring churches of uh, 150 or less, which is nearly every doctrinal pastor I know, probably half of them have wives that subsidize the churches. Otherwise, they would not be able to uh, work in ministry at all. People like uh, Dr. Meisinger, President Chafer Seminary, and pastoring a church, and yet his wife has worked for years in order for them to be able to uh, do what they needed to do and raise, I think he raised four sons, and uh, two of them went through the United States Military Academy at West Point, but all of that because his, his wife, and I can go through this, I know a couple of pastors who've had to work two jobs. They get paid a one salary from the church, and they've had to work... Uh, Another job, and that's just not true for pastors. It's true across the board, and it's uh, it's tough on women. Women are supposed to be subordinate to the authority of their husband, but if a woman works outside the home in many jobs in many offices, they're under the authority of a business that often conflicts with the authority of their husband, and it gets very difficult. You put a woman out in the workplace where she is in a position of authority over. Uh, a whole large set, you know, part of the corporation, a lot of people, and then she comes home, and she may, has to be in a position of subordination to a husband. And let's say this husband's just a carnal believer. That makes it really tough. And the pressure from the rationale of the society around us is, well, you, know, you don't need to be in that marriage or just do this or do that, all these illegitimate things. So paganism just pressures us and seeps in from all corners to try to get us to conform not to the thinking of the Word of God but to the norms and standards of the pagan culture around us. And we see this evidenced in this particular chapter how 
the women are just belittled. This is typical of paganism where women are belittled and they're abused and they're treated as nothing more than a, a power pawn or a sex object. A third thing that we see, third characteristic we see that's typical of paganism is that justice is perverted into vengeance. Justice is perverted into vengeance. How many times do we hear, I think there's a situation right now of a, a young man who was involved in rape and murder about 10 years ago, uh, gang rape or murder, who's up on death row here. And so we'll look to hear everybody kind of trotting out their arguments against the death penalty and for the death penalty. And you listen carefully to what you hear because you will hear people for the death penalty couch their arguments in terms of vengeance. And you will hear people who are against the death penalty also utilize vengeance terminology. We don't need to get revenge on these people. It's not about revenge. It is about justice. But we confuse concepts of justice with vengeance. And vengeance is very different from uh, from justice. And ju- vengeance takes place when we no longer have, an, have a, an objective external standard and we're just getting concerned about righting a personal wrong from our own personal vantage point. Fourth characteristic is we see here two different and wrong responses to evil and injustice. They're portrayed in this chapter. Two responses toward evil and injustice. The first is passivity. And this is seen in Jacob. Here his daughter gets raped by this man in Shechem, and he's more concerned about his social acceptance in, in the community and the fact that people would, would accept him and they could live and operate inside the community than he is about the honor of his own daughter. And he is conspicuously silent throughout the entire episode. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't get involved in the negotiations. He doesn't react. And after the brothers overreact at the end of the chapter, he accuses them of overreacting. He says, well, now I just have to move because these people won't accept me and let me live here anymore. Look what you've done to my reputation. So that is one one side of it is this passivity toward evil. Somehow we're going to appease evil and compromise with evil, and everything will be okay, just don't rock the boat. And we see that today in the way diplomacy is conducted by the uh, uh, State Department of the United States, by uh, other people in the United States who want to appease evil. The classic example, of course, was, was, at, uh, was Chamberlain, Prime Minister of England in 1938 at Munich, who just basically walked away and gave Hitler... Uh, Eastern Europe. Then we have the opposite, which is a harsh overreaction, which is demonstrated in the actions of the twelve sons of Jacob. An injustice, which is clearly an injustice and a crime, is used to justify an even greater injustice and crime, and it's committed in the name, almost in the name of religion. But in neither case is justice served or the victim honored. In both cases, it's all about the people. Uh, It's a self-centered, arrogant type of reaction to evil and injustice, and there's little appeal to an external standard. Fifth characteristic of paganism that we see here is the idea that an end justifies the means. 
uh, and this and the and the end justifies the means rationale is typically ex- operative in paganism because there's no uh, external objective. So uh, the sin nature always seeks to justify itself in terms of its own uh, carnality. So what we've done is. First principle, when you lie down with dogs, you're going to get fleas. When you're living in the midst of paganism, you're going to absorb paganism without doctrine as your filter. Second, in this chapter, we have these five characteristics of paganism. Third, God's conspicuously absent from this story. We don't see any reference to God anywhere in this story. God's in the background, but the story serves a different uh, purpose. It's the absence of God that speaks volumes, especially when we put it in perspective the perspective of the coming events. This picture, this event in chapter 34, is part of a mosaic that gives us a, a picture of the spiritual and moral status of the 12 sons of Jacob. In chapter 35, Reuben, who is also a son of Leah, has sexual intercourse with his father's other concubine, Bilhah. And then in Chapter 37, Joseph's brothers are going to attempt first to kill him, and then they sell him into slavery, and they lie about it to their father. Then we're going to read about Jacob taking a wife from among the Canaanites. He has a couple of sons, one of whom is Ur, and Ur takes a wife named Tamar. Then Ur is so evil, God takes his life, sent unto death. Now Tamar is without a husband, so... Uh, Jacob says, well, wait a while, I'll raise up the next son, and you can, uh, you, you can marry him, the principle of leverage marriage. So she goes out and disguises herself along the road. He thinks she's a prostitute, and so he goes and hires her and has sex with his daughter-in-law as a prostitute, and things just go downhill from there. All of the sons of Jacob just are morally and spiritually bankrupt. And yet God is still true to his promise that he is going to bless all the world, you and me, through these wonderful, upstanding, outstanding, glorious individuals. See, that's the grace of God. And frankly, you know, when our sin natures run amok, we're not, as a class, any better than they are. And finally, we see that the brothers do exhibit a moral and spiritual reversal when we come to chapters 42 to 44 when they are confronted with Joseph and this ultimately brings reconciliation to the family in Egypt which prepares them in a united front to face the coming years of slavery. Fourth point, the overarching doctrine in this chapter is the importance of separation from the cosmic system. That's the real issue here, because what, what the reason God has to move the, the descendants of Jacob, his sons, and everybody down to Egypt, is because they're assimilating with paganism. And that's the point of all these episodes, is to show that as they've rejected doctrine, they begin to act just like the pagans around them, and if God doesn't do something, they're going to assimilate within a couple of generations into the Canaanite culture around them, and they won't be any different, and they'll be lost. And so in order for God to achieve his purposes in history, he is going to bring them through through various means down to Egypt and isolate them so that they can grow to a substantive number and then go back to the land and defeat the uh, Canaanites. So the overarching doctrine in the chapter is the importance of separation from the cosmic system. Now, 
this shouldn't be taken as a physical separation per se. You always have legalists who come along and say, well, what we need to do is go off and live in a monastery, or we need to be like the Amish and completely you know, go back 200 years in terms of technology and isolate ourselves from everything around us and get rid of the television, You'd never go to a movie, and don't ever read any magazines, and don't read contemporary literature, and just, just isolate yourself and hide from the world around you. And that's not the right answer. The focus here is not on a physical separation per se, although there is a an element of that that will be necessary. But it's first and foremost a mental separation based on the priority of Bible doctrine. We have to get our thinking aligned with the Word of God, and then the consequence of that, the more you think biblically, the more you will be able to rightly discern where to bring about those other separations. As you grow and mature as a believer, you will come to understand that there are some friends you may have had all your life that you really don't need to continue to associate with because of their influence. There are things that you have done in the past and enjoyed, but they are a source of a, of a negative spiritual influence on your life, so you need to uh, physically separate those things. And sometimes that's difficult because some of these uh, people and some of these things are things that we truly enjoy, but they become distractions to our spiritual life. Bible doctrine has to be the priority, and our spiritual growth and relationship with the Lord has to be the priority. Ultimately, how we apply these principles is between each individual and the Lord. I can't get stand up here and say these are five things you need to do and implement in your life in terms of separation. Every one of us is different. Every one of us is at a different place in our, in our spiritual growth. And as you take in the Word of God and as the Holy Spirit works on your life, you're going to see where you need to make these, these decisions. And that's part of the tests of each, for each one of us in our spiritual growth. Are we willing to step to those challenges and make those uh, separations when necessary? Fifth, another key doctrine that controls a chapter is one I've alluded to already, and that is the grace of God. It is God's grace that he brings about his plans and purposes, and they're not dependent upon who we are and what we do. Salvation is not dependent upon who we are or what we do. Salvation is dependent upon who Jesus Christ is and what he did on the cross. And God's plan is always dependent upon his character, not our character. Sixth, a negative theme which we see working itself out in this chapter is that of deception. This is really interesting both because there's a shift in deception. You go, I haven't figured out how to put all this together yet, but deception's an interesting theme through much of the Pentateuch. What we see is Abraham and Isaac deceived uh, first the Pharaoh in Egypt and Abimelech about their wives. Oh, it's not my wife, it's my sister. But the rationale behind it is, is self-protection. They felt for right or wrong that their life was threatened because they had a beautiful wife and that somebody was going to, steal their wife. Then we had, and then so they lied about it. Then we had uh, Jacob, and Jacob lies and deceives Esau, Then he deceives his father for the purpose of securing the blessing. But even though those are wrong, what we see with these 12 boys now is they're going to deceive the Hivites for the purpose of murder and vengeance. They have uh, becoming 
uh, increasingly are geometrically worse than their than their predecessors. One result of this, this is seventh, one result of this is that Levi and Simeon, who are at the very core of this uh, deception and the murder of Shechem and all the males in the city, one of the results of this is that Levi and Simeon will both forfeit blessing in the future. Now, that's a really important doctrine that's a little tough for some of us to understand at times, is that even though we're saved by faith alone in Christ alone, even though we're guaranteed an eternity in heaven and a destiny in heaven, there are still decisions that we can make in this life that will cancel and forfeit certain blessings, certain privileges, certain responsibilities in the future. We've studied this in and Hebrews, we've studied this in some other other studies. Now, let me see if I can find the right uh, slide here. There we go. Genesis 49 and following. Genesis 49, 5 through 8. In these passages, this chapter, and we'll get to it in detail, it's one of the most fascinating prophecies in the Old Testament. Jacob is give, is about to die, and he is... Uh, uttering a prophecy regarding each of his sons and their future. And here he says about Simeon and Levi. Simeon and Levi are brothers. They are they both have Jacob and Leah as their parents, their full blood brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their counsel. Daddy doesn't trust him. These boys are wicked. Let not my glory be united with their assembly. Because in their anger they slew men. That's a reference to this chapter. And in their self-will they lamed oxen. Also a reference to the destruction they committed in this chapter. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. They're not going to have an inheritance in the land. Levi did not have an inheritance in the land. They were the priestly tribe, but they did not have a property inheritance in the land. Simeon also lost their inheritance in the land, the tribe. Part of Simeon's inheritance was in the territory of Judah, but within a couple of generations, because of their compromise with the Canaanites, they lost their individual identity, and Simeon disappeared. The tribe disappears, and they're completely assimilated within Judah. Now, the reason I'm taking a little aside here to address that that's what happens here, and you see this again and again in the Old Testament, that the whole concept of inheritance in the Old Testament becomes the backdrop for understanding inheritance and rewards in the New Testament, that there is real jeopardy attached to the inheritance and rewards of a believer who fails and at the judgment seat of Christ loses rewards. Now, Dr. Meisinger covered this in detail in three nights when he was here, and during the Q&A, a question was asked, and his answer created a few ripples of concern that I want to uh, address briefly this evening. There is um, there's a view among free grace advocates. There's two or three different views on just exactly what happens to loser believers at the judgment seat of Christ. And I will uh, just briefly summarize these. The first view is that 
when the loser believer, the failure believer, the believer that fails to live the Christian life, appears at the judgment seat of Christ, and they have no rewards, and they enter heaven yet as through fire, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that there is clearly shame and embarrassment at the judgment seat of Christ. But it is momentary, and it's almost like they, it's almost treated as if they go off and they have a good cry, and then it's all over with. The second view is that, no, it's a little more serious than that. And this is a view that is, that is based on the use of an idiom and that appears in several of the, of the, uh, of the parables in the gospel, specifically in Matthew. And this is where you read the parable, and then at the end it says, and so-and-so is, is taken, and they're cast into a place of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth and outer darkness. And in some of the passages where that verbiage is used, it does refer to unbelievers, and it's talking about the lake of fire. But in other passages, it's not. It's talking about something that happens to believers. Now, that seems really harsh to our ears, but the phrase weeping and wailing, gnashing of teeth and outer darkness is, is, is a Hebraism. It's a figure of speech to indicate emotional remorse, not physical punishment. And it is just a, a hyperbolic expression of the deep, profound shame that takes place at the judgment seat of Christ. First John 2.28 says that we don't want to be ashamed at his coming, at his appearance. And that's what that's talking about. Now, the debate that occurs is how long that lasts. There are some that take what I do not believe, and I do not agree with Dr. Meisinger, that this extends through the millennial kingdom. That was a question I was asked when I got home. Uh, how long does that last? I think it lasts however long it lasts. Remember, when we are raptured and all the churches in heaven at the judgment seat of Christ, we're in heaven. This is a non-temporal environment, okay? On earth, seven years are going to go by, but we don't know what that's like. There's succession of events at the judgment seat of Christ, but we don't know how long that lasts. But there will be a serious and a profound sorrow on the part of many believers who have failed not not every believer fails at some point that's not what these passages are talking about these passages are talking about believers who end up with a goose egg at the judgment seat of Christ zero nothing it's all wood hay and straw they've got nothing that they've done they got saved and that was it and then they lived in pure carnality for the rest of of their existence and they're going to be deeply, profoundly remorseful judgment seat of Christ, and they're going to lose all inheritance and all rewards, but they enter the kingdom, they enter heaven as to fire. And so I believe they will be present in the millennial kingdom, but they will not be rulers, they will not reign, they will not have responsibilities, they won't have privileges, they will be excluded from the blessings that go to the overcomer believers, and that's the passages we've studied in Revelation uh, at the end of each of the seven letters to the seven churches of Revelation. And that's a difference, but I think that this does not extend into the millennial kingdom or through the millennial kingdom. And then the other part of that question, that, which is what raised the, raised the issue, hey, getting sidetracked here, but now and then you have to put out fires. Revelation 21 is the chapter that starts the discussion on the new heaven and new earth. 
Temporally speaking, just read the passage. Now I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. Okay, when are we in time here? This is the new heaven, new earth. The millennium's over with. The present heavens and earth are destroyed. We're in the new heaven and new earth. Then I, John, saw the Holy Spirit. The word then is a temporal word. The next thing I saw was the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, that is, the dwelling of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them, be their God. And continuation of thought, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So if you just read the passage, this very well-known passage, God shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. In context, when does this occur? It occurs in the new heaven and new earth. It is a description of what? Of the fact that everything related to the curse is gone. In fact, in Revelation chapter 22, it says that the curse is no more. So it is descriptive of the fact that nothing related to the curse of sin is present in the new heaven and new earth. Was it present in the millennial kingdom? Sure it was. Are there believers who have sorrow and tears and pain in the millennial kingdom? Yes, but not resurrected believers. You see, this passage, Revelation 21.4, is a description of what perfect environment is like. And we don't get perfect environment throughout the universe until Jesus Christ uh, establishes the new heavens and new earth. But for believers of any dispensation who die and are transferred to heaven with a resurrection body, then you're in the same kind of perfect environment that will be present at the in the new heaven and the new earth, and so this is typical of that. So when we die, it, we enter into that same sphere where there's no more sorrow, no more tear, no more pain. Now the sorrow and tears and pain here are the sorrow and tears and pain related to living in a fallen environment, not the tears of remorse and regret, which is what will occur uh, for a temporary period of time to those believers who... Uh, lose everything in the judgment seat of Christ. It's a different concept. There they are executing remorse. The remorse isn't what's in view in in Revelation 21.4. What's in view in Revelation 21.4 is the sorrow, the pain, the heartache that is associated with living in a fallen world. That's the contrast between the new heavens and earth and the old heavens and earth. So, you know, I would agree, I think, in the way... Uh, George answered the question. I would agree that in a technical sense, Revelation 21.4 applies to the new heaven and new earth, but in a broad, that's just an instantiation of the broad principle that that is what characterizes uh, being in the presence of God for every believer at any time. However, that, it, that verse doesn't have anything to say about the remorse and regret that occurs at the judgment seat of Christ. But I would disagree with him that it doesn't go beyond the second coming. Once once we come back with Jesus in the millennial kingdom, there is, you know, no more remorse. But you ha- you may not have ever heard that before. I remember the first time I heard it, I screwed up my eyes and I went, what? Weeping and wailing, gnashing of teeth. I always thought that was a description of the lake of fire. Well, it is in two or three of the parables where the context clearly says, let them be cast into fire where there is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. 
But there's a couple of those parables where it's clear it's talking about the uh, temporal, temporary punishment and embarrassment of a servant who has failed completely to do what the master asked him to do, and so they lose that inheritance. That's the same thing that we see exhibited in this passage. Okay, let's get back now and let's look at what happens in this extraordinary incident with Dinah. Now, what's just happened, let me go back to a slide here. What's just happened, remember, is Jacob has come back from the north, and he's had this encounter with God, wrestled with the angel at Peniel. I thought you would like a picture of it. This is... Uh, this is in what is currently the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan, and the river down on the lower right is the Jabbok River, and Peniel is actually located on the opposite side of the river from where we're standing. So those hills on the other side, somewhere in that vicinity, is where uh, Jacob was stopped by Laban, where they signed their treaty, and then that night Jacob wrestled with the angel of God. So that just gives you a little idea of what that uh, was like. The other thing we need to understand is is this kind of a flow chart here. This is the line of the seed. Jacob, Jacob first married Leah, then Rachel, then he had children with Zilpah, Leah's handmaid, and then Bilhah, Rachel's handmaid. The children that Jacob had with Leah are Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. These are the males. And then he had a daughter, Dinah. And what we see here is that this is all related to full-blood brothers and sisters. Dinah is a full brother and sister to uh, Simeon and to Levi. And they're the ones who seem to lead this charge of vindictiveness. Now we read in the first verse, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, prince of the country, so this tells you that he's in the aristocracy, he is the, the key leader, in the, the son of the key leader in this city of Shechem. He saw her, took her, and lay with her, and violated her. And there's a little bit of a play on words here on the Hebrew word ra'ah. The New American Standard translates it to visit in verse 1, and that misses the point. Dinah goes out. That's another key word that's used in, in, uh, in, in this section. You have a number of people uh, going out in this particular passage. Dinah goes out, then in verse 6, Hamor goes out of the city to negotiate with Jacob. And then the Hivites go out of the city in verse 24 to, uh, to get circumcised. And then the brothers go into the city and they get their sister and go out of the city in verse 26. So these kind of things just tie, the, tie it together. But what happens here is Dinah goes out to see the daughters of the land. Now she's not, she is not merely going out and looking. She, she is, this foreshadows the whole attraction of the children to paganism. She wants to get involved with the daughters of the land. She doesn't want to stay at home with her brothers. She wants to go out and be like the women, the, the women in the Canaanite city. She wants to learn all about them, and she's attracted to them. 
Verse 2 says, And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her. Now, there's a lot that skipped over here. How did he see her? Where did he see her? What was involved in this? How did he get in a position where he was alone with her, where he could rape her? Now, all these details are skipped over in the text. But what we can see reading between the lines is that that they got involved, and this is what we would probably refer to today as date rape, or perhaps it is a, uh, he's just abusing his authority. Uh, but what, whichever the case, he takes her, lays with her, and violates her. Now, there's no Hebrew word for rape, but it is the threefold use of these words that indicates uh, that he has that he is raping her. The Hebrew word for violated her is anah, and when it's used in conjunction with taking her and laying with her, it clearly indicates the sense of rape. It has the idea of dealing very harshly or abusively with somebody. It's used in Genesis 15:13 to describe the future oppression of the Jews when they're in slavery in Egypt. Verse 3, we learn that his soul was strongly attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. Now, here's an interesting, ironic twist. The word that's used for strongly attracted is a Hebrew word, dabach. First place we run into that is back in uh, Genesis 2.24, when a man is to leave his parents and cleave to his wife. And this is not a term for uh, sexual activity. It is a term for strong attraction and authority. But see... What's happened here is this guy's got lust, not love. He has fallen head over heels in lust with, with uh, Dinah, and he has, and after having sex with her, rather than like with the case of uh, 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 David's daughters, Tamar, and uh, I forget the uh, uh, son's name, uh, where he rapes her and then he can't stand the sight of her, uh, Shechem is just drawn... Uh, to Dinah, he just can't live without her. He just has his burning passion for her, and that's the that's the emphasis here that's reiterated throughout the passage. He he can't think straight anymore because his hormones are all raging, and he just has to have her. Now, she's about 14 or 15 years of age, which was typical at this time when a, a young girl would be entering into marriage, and he's young as well. Both of them are referred to by the Hebrew word na'ar, na'ara, indicating that they're probably teenagers. And he tries to woo her after this. It says he loved her, and he spoke kindly to her, and he's trying to make up to her because he wants to have her as his wife. So he goes to his father, and he says, Get me this young woman as a wife. Now, this, to our ears, sounds pretty harsh and demanding, but that's not the case in their culture. This is just a standard saying, you know, I want to have her as my wife, and marriages were arranged between parents, and so... This is uh, uh, his way of asking his father to go negotiate with Jacob so that uh, Dinah can be his wife. Now, when we get to verse uh, 4, Shechem's, uh, verse 5, rather, Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. Now, this is interesting. Watch what happens with Jacob. He heard that you expect the next sentence to be some kind of reaction on Jacob's part. But what we read is, Now his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. Now what you first think when you read that is Jacob's going to do something once he gets his sons there, then they will go do something. But Jacob isn't heard from again until the end of the episode. 
he he goes he's completely silent. He's in the background. It's as if he abdicates his whole role. And then when they when the sons do what they're going to do, Jacob is angry with them because well now he's not going to be able to go to the Lions Club and the Rotary Club with the guys in Shechem anymore and conduct business with them. And so he's taking the passive appeasement role to uh, to handling handling evil. Now when the brothers come together, they're going to uh, negotiate, but they have an ulterior motive. They, they've got a plan already. They're going to execute vengeance. We read in verse 6, Then Hamor the father of Shechem went out to Jacob to speak with him. And then the next five verses from 7 to 12 basically give us his negotiation. He comes out to negotiate with Jacob, but instead of Jacob, the sons of Jacob's come in, and they're grieved and they're angry, as they should be. Their reaction is correct. It's what they do with their reaction that's wrong. Okay, They have a proper sense of justice, and they're grieved and, and very angry. And notice, we didn't read that about Jacob. See, that's that influence of paganism. And it's also because, because Jacob, Jacob loves Rachel and her children. And Leah's like a second-class citizen, so he's not honoring her. Even though uh, he was deceived in taking Leah, he should be honoring her. This is this example of how paganism affects uh, how men and women relate to each other in marriage. It, 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 it destroys that. And so Leah and her children are, are minimized, and so he just doesn't care. And the sons of... But the, the sons are properly grieved and angry because he that is Shechem had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which ought not to be done. They have a sense of right and wrong and justice has been violated and there is a cry for justice. Unfortunately, their their thoughts on justice have been completely uh, destroyed by the pagan culture around him. Now Hamor comes in, the father of Shechem, and spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. This is that word debak again. This this guy just he he's just lusting for he's got the he can't he can't operate. I mean just that's all he can do is his thoughts are obsessed, consumed uh, with Dinah. Please give her to him as a wife, and make marriages with us, and give daughters to us, and take our daughters to yourselves. Now notice verse nine. Verse nine And verse 30 are the interpretive keys to this passage. Okay, what happens in verse 9? Verse 9, Hamor says, Make marriage with us and give your daughters to us. Take our daughters to yourself, so you shall dwell with us, and the land shall be before us. Assimilate with us. Become one with us. And Jacob says in verse 30 to Simeon and Levi, You've troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land. See, their goal is to assimilate. And now God has used this to prevent that assimilation. So God is even using all of this, the, the, the evil of the brothers, to work out his purposes of protection. Uh, another thing that I want you to note is that undergirding this is an economic motive on the part of Hamor. He looks at Jacob and his wealth, and he says, you know, if, if I can get his daughter as, as my daughter-in-law and they start intermarrying with us, we're all going to get richer. And that's going to be one of the major 
reasons that uh, Shechem uses to convince all the men in the village that they need to go out and get circumcised. Well, that gives away the plot as to what's coming up. And uh, So Hamor makes his offer, marry, intermarry with us, dwell in the land, and then Shechem comes in, and he's just naive, and he's willing to just do anything to get her for his wife, and says, let me find favor or grace in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I'll give. Ask me ever so much, so much dowry and gift, and I will give according to according to what you say to me, but give me the young woman as a wife. Now, he's willing to pay anything for the bride price. Now, in, Egypt, in, in Hebrew, the custom among the Hebrews was to pay a dowry or a bride price. It wasn't the purchase of a wife. But this is how he is expressing it, as if it is the purchase of a wife. And that's how the brothers take it. In verse 31, you see their understanding. Says, they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute. So that's, that's how he's coming across to them. And so they come up with a plan. So, you know, we can't do this to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised. Now, they have no care and concern about the Abrahamic covenant or their relationship to God whatsoever. But this is an opportunity to use the, the, the cover of religion to bring about their injustice. So they're going to, they're going to use circumcision to do that. Now, what was circumcision? It's the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, that they were unique. The descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were unique, set apart, and it was a reminder that God had promised them the land. So they're going to use that, and they're going to say, you know, we can't have someone uncircumcised. It's all surface. It's all superficial. Uh, you guys all get circumcised, and then there can be this, there can be a wedding, and we can, we can start to intermarry. Uh, so that's that's what they what they offer, and so as they convinced Hamor and Shechem of this, it pleased them. They're thinking about all the money they're going to get at the end when they when they intermarry. So the young men did not delay to do this thing, uh, because he delighted in Jacob's trouble. And then the New King James says he was more honorable. That's not what it says in the Hebrew. It says he was honored more among the people. He was in a position of respect among all the people, so he uses his position to go back. And he must have been a good motivational speaker because he's going to convince all of these men to go out and get circumcised without benefit of anesthesia. And, of course, that is exactly the plan that... uh, that the brothers have is they are going to have all these men go through this little surgery without anesthesia, and this is going to pretty much knock them out of the combat mode for a while. And after three days when they're in a lot of pain, because we all know that the third day after surgery is the most painful day, then they're going to come into town and they're just going to execute vengeance, which is exactly what they did on verse 25. Now, it came to pass on the third day when they were in pain, that two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, they are the key conspirators here. Two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. Remember in Jacob's prophecy in chapter 49, he says, Cursed are their swords. That's the problem, is they are violent. This isn't justice, this is vengeance. And they are completely out of line. They're acting like pagans and executing uh, vengeance and not justice. See, the, the, the Mosaic law states this. Of course, Mosaic law is later. 
But this is the penalty in the Mosaic Law. If a man finds a young woman who is a virgin who is not betrothed and seizes her and lies with her, and this is, he rapes her, and they find out, then the man who lay with her shall give to the young woman's father 50 shekels of silver, that's the bride price, and she shall be his wife because he has humbled her. He shall not be, uh, literally raped her. He shall not be permitted to divorce her all of his days. Now, isn't that interesting? Now, if she was betrothed, he got the death penalty. But if she's not betrothed, it's not as harsh. But this was Jew to Jew. Now, if a Jew, Jewish woman was raped by a Canaanite, then, of course, it would be the death penalty. But the death penalty for him, not for his whole family and the whole city. So this is a, an, a, an overreaction of vengeance against everyone. Verse 26, And they killed Hamor and Shechem his son with the edge of the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went out. That's the fourth use of that phrase, went out. The sons of Jacob, these are the other brothers then, come upon the slain and they plunder the city. See, this is the irony here. Shechem and Hamor thought, oh, we're going to plunder. We're going to get to intermarry with Jacob's family and we're going to plunder them. And what happens is that the brothers execute vengeance and they come in and they plunder uh, the Hivites. They took the sheep, their oxen, their donkeys, what was in the city and what was in the field and all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives they took captive and they plundered even all that was in their houses. Now we hear from Jacob. Daddy finally shows up and he's angry with the brothers. Not because they have illegitimately executed vengeance, but because he's got to move. He, he can't hobnob with the, with the aristocracy and check him anymore. Then Jacob said to Simeon, Levi, you've troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites, and since I am few in number, they will gather themselves together against me and kill me. I shall be destroyed, my household and I. What he means by I'm few in number is that there's just a few of us. We only have about uh, 30 or 40 of us, and they will outnumber us and destroy us. And they justify it by saying, should he treat us, treat our sister like a prostitute? Notice there's no break in the, in the text in the Hebrew. It just goes to the next verse. Then God said to Jacob, arise and go to Bethel. Interesting transition. Now we'll come back and look at that next time. What's the point? The point of this is that when we don't use the Bible and doctrine as a, as a filter for paganism, then believers will succumb to, to their sin nature, rationalizations and justifications of their sin nature, and believers will, be, will look, act, and behave like pagans. But what the Scripture tells us is that we're not to be conformed to this world. That is the thinking of this era. It's not cosmos there, but it is the thinking of the age. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may demonstrate what is good and acceptable what that prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So we are to stand firm against assimilation with the cosmic thinking around us, and that involves a lot of thought, a lot of effort, a lot of study in order to think biblically. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be challenged by the things we study here, to recognize that all of us are influenced by the pagan thought that surrounds us in our 
uh, relativistic postmodern world. Father, we pray that we would have the courage and the honesty to face the truth of your scripture and how it impacts each of us, that we may make your word the priority in our life, that we may learn to think and to act as you would have us to think. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.